The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, it's Patrick Starr. I'm coming straight to you with my very own podcast. Say yes to the guest. I'll be hanging out with some of my fiercest friends and spilling some serious tea on business, beauty, and being a boss-ass bitch. With me, baby, you'll never know what will happen. Find Yes to the Guest on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where podcasts are played. Start streaming and downloading now. And don't forget to subscribe because every Monday we're going in. We got so much to chat about. So turn it up and say yes to the guest. Yes. 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 yes! I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. My guest on today's episode of Looking Up is chef, author, and host of Top Chef Canada, Eden Grinchpan. She's cordon bleu trained, not afraid to get a little messy with her food, and loves to eat out loud. She says it like it is, and she's as much funny as she is transparent and honest about her feelings. Eden's book, Eating Out Loud, came out last fall, and it's packed with over 100 modern Middle Eastern recipes. Oh, and she just had her second baby. Yes, we definitely talk cooking. Or, well, she talks and I take notes. But we also talk about her life-changing travel to India, where she volunteered in an orphanage and eventually opened up her own cafe. We talk about postpartum anxiety. She's super candid about how after having her first child, she was frightened and for the first time, she wasn't able to trust her own intuition. We talk about decision fatigue, cooking fatigue, how simple condiments can change an entire dish, parenting, pregnancy hormones, and well, our mutual love of bread. So how we start looking up is with a little section uh, that I like to call looking in, and it's just a series of some rapid fire style questions. So don't uh, put too much thought or judgment, whatever the first thing that comes to mind is. So Eden, Has there been a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? And if so, please share. Yeah, so actually recently, so I'm pregnant with my second. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, I had a pretty like hard time with my first, um, like my fourth trimester was a little bit of like, you know, an intense experience for me. I had um, some postpartum anxiety and um, it actually like stopped me from having another child for a bit. You know, my daughter's almost, she's actually going to be four this week. So um, someone told me about this book, Crib Sheet. And um, I picked it up and I read it. And I and I think, you know, there's uh, the, I think it's Emily. Emily Oster. Emily Oster. So yes. I read, it's Expecting Better. I read that. And yep. then the Crib Sheet. And I found Crib Sheet was actually even more helpful to me because it's, fourth trimester and like just dealing as like a new mother. And there was a lot of, there were a lot of things in there that kind of, you know, allowed me to, you know, take a deep, deep breath and like a relaxing breath. And also like, you know, just help me train my brain a little bit and how to like approach this second child and not put so much pressure on myself, which is, I think where I went really wrong uh, with Ave. So I think that book is really like, it's a great book. I um, totally agree. I'm, I'm looking 
past my computer right now because it's actually on my nightstand. <laughs> I remember when I, it was a little bit after, or maybe half, uh, maybe when Jag was like close to a year, but I heard her, actually Alex, my husband, he alerted me to a podcast episode where she was talking. And I think it was just so exactly what you said, like so much relief because every step of the way, it was just like, you know, there's a million different ways to do one thing and there's opinions all around. And as a mom, it's just like, as a human, we already have, we live in a world like that. But then as a mom, when you're just like, this little baby is dependent completely on the things that I do and like literally the things I do, I eat, I I expose myself to, et cetera. I expose her or him to. It's so daunting. And I think can cause anyone to have an uptick of anxiety. And so it was nice to hear from someone that kind of just only coming from like the data standpoint. Of course, that's not uh, the same as, you know, take that with the grain of salt and however it works for you because there is a mom's intuition and there is experience, whatever, whatever. But she, I, I really appreciated also hearing the point of view, like just strictly what the data says. And I think it was like very relieving. Anyway, that's my two cents. I totally agree with you. Excellent book. I just want to say one thing. You brought up mother's intuition. I think for me, everything I've ever done in my life, I've always been able to rely on my intuition. And I was actually pretty confident about that. And this was the first time in my life that I was like so fearful approaching things because I didn't know in the end if it was right or wrong. Right. I think that coming with that like information that she put together kind of solidified some of the things too that like, you know, deep down inside you feel this way, but you don't necessarily know because it's your first time. Like exactly. And I I came with that. I came to it so bizarrely with so much fear that I was going to make the wrong choice. And that's what really got to me. But I, I do think that like just her, just the things she also talked about, like even the little details of like to use the nurses at the hospital after you give birth. I'm like, that was a thing. That was an actual conversation that my husband and I had. And so she was really good at picking up the little details that really make in the moment, they feel huge. Yes, absolutely. I feel like I had a little bit of a delayed intuition problem where like when my when Jag, my firstborn was baby, 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 I had a horrible pregnancy, which I've shared with you before, very traumatic and birth included. But then when he came out and I was worried I wasn't going to have any sort of intuition or instinct or even like, I don't know, maternal instinct because I just wasn't connected at all through the pregnancy because it was just so traumatic. But um, when he came out, I had this like opposite experience where I told, I just knew, like, I just knew what he needed. Like I really did. Like we had this like thing going and I like knew he knew that I knew and it was just great. But then now with him as a toddler, I second guess everything. And I'm like, am I and especially this past year, like the things I'm exposing him to. What am I like? The books, the the little bit of TV he watches, the schools, where he's going to go. Like every decision is so monumental. And it's like caused this experience of, and I talk about it a lot before I was a mom, but there's so many, there's so much choice that it paralyzes us. And so we lose sight of the actual decision-making and the ability to decision-make because there's just too much out there. And that is a natural thing that happens to us. And so there's this like, there is some power in like eliminating choice. But <laughs> and like that because my mother-in-law, when I, did, I, I breastfed for 13 months, but I introduced formula at eight months. 
honestly, I don't know if I'm going to last that long again. Like, please, like so insane. But uh, my mother-in-law was like, I do not envy you. Like I only had choice between two formulas. You have to choose between like 20 and you're like sitting there like stressed, like, where does this actually come from? Who's processing this? Is this like approved by this? You know, it's like there's, and then you're like paralyzed with like this kind of like overwhelming. Yes. Um, I totally agree. There, we're, we're also in like a, in a time where like there's so much decision to fatigue. Like there's yes. too many options. Exactly. Like that's exactly what it is. Decision fatigue. But I just remember like you can make an Excel spreadsheet for every decision. And by the way, how exhausting is that? <laughs> and we're also at a point where we're just kind of losing touch with our intuition, which is a really big issue right now that we all face. And we have to like work on specific ways to get more in touch with that. But we're just, that's the type of world we live in. So we have decision fatigue and a really severed relationship with our own gut instinct. And that's a troublesome space, but things are looking up. (laughs) Okay. So my next question for you is people think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. Oh, I think people think I'm glass half full, but I'm actually glass half empty. (laughs) And my husband is glass half full, which is like exactly what I need in my life. I'm a realist. And uh, my husband is a total optimist. So like even our conversations, he's like, oh my God, this is happening. I'm like, let's just get to this place before we get to that place. Okay. Like (laughs) I'm definitely like an optimistic person, but I'm definitely just like, maybe it's, you know, just through my life experience, I'm just more realistic. And I like to almost sometimes to a fault where I don't actually enjoy things in the moment, because the journey is really so much about it, right? Right. Um, Until like, I'm like, I'm not going to enjoy this until I really get there. And I'm like, enjoy it all. Mm -hmm. My husband like enjoys it all like every day, like it's all great. So, um, so yeah, I think I'm definitely optimistic, but I'm also like realistic. Yeah. And I think that uh, oftentimes uh, everyone listening, probably if you've ever heard another episode of Looking Up, you know that, or if you've heard me speak anywhere, you know how much I talk about the intersection between optimism and realism. And actually like a true optimist is quite realistic. But I definitely would love to experience life a little more like Ido, your husband, where you're able to enjoy it all. And I can say, you know, 100% that I'm an optimism doctor, but I'm definitely someone that, you know, also holds back sometimes in celebration of things before it's like, you know, I have this like sort of like, I'm not going to pull the like safety latch yet until I really know, like, I'm not going to use it until I actually already know that I'm safe (laughs) sometimes, you know? And so I think there's that. Okay. When is the last time that you cried? 20 minutes ago. My sister's due, like she, her due date's April 18th. And she's like, I'm very close with my sisters. And the fact that I'm not with them right now is like killing me. And, um, and I'm pregnant. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I'm also like, so it's okay. Fun. You can. I, I love a good cry. Are you kidding? It's like yes. my favorite. I often prescribe a good cry. So. I love it. I love it. But it's been really hard for me. Like I never felt the distance between my siblings and I. And we haven't really lived in the same country altogether for like 17 years until we started having kids. And now I'm like, where are my people? You know? I totally get it. 
I feel similarly. And also for my kids, I'm just like, one thing I've learned is having family nearby and kids around the same age is such a blessing. Like it, this happened in the last 13 months. Like friends I, I have have like seven, eight, nine cousins that live near and their kids are like, that's like already a pod. And they were able to really like go through this time together. And I'm just like, oh, where's like, I wish my sister lived in the same place and the kids could play. And like a part of my like, one of the hardest things for me this year was just not, not being able to see my son play with other children and especially his cousins. But that is just a sad, it's been, it's, you know, amongst other things, but mm-hmm. I totally get that. And as a teenager during your high school years, how would you describe yourself in three words? Insecure, realistically, because that's teenage life. Uh, goofy, because I've always been a class clown. And just, you know, I would say, I don't know, what's the word for trying to find yourself? I wouldn't mm, say seeking, lost. Seeker? But yeah, seeker. I wouldn't say lost, but I'd say like, yeah, seeker. Someone who is like just trying to like place themselves and figure things out, which I also think is so high school standard, but yeah. Absolutely. Um, and kind of like human standard yeah. <laughs> in general. And today, although it's, the day is not over, but three things that have brought you joy today. Oh, well, this morning, my daughter and I went and had like a spontaneous breakfast date before school. And we got smoothies and overnight oats. And we had a picnic in the backseat of our car before I drove her to school. And uh, either um, like my husband and her eyes, like we say super, I guess a lot because everything now is like, I'm super happy. I'm super cozy. This is super great. And like (laughs) just to hear her verbally express like just her emotions, especially being so positive is like such like an amazing feeling as a parent, but also just like those moments. Like I love that we were like just spontaneously. I was like, Daddy's gone at a, an appointment. Let's go, girls. Get our oats and our smoothies. And like, he's loving it, and I'm loving it. And like, which, you know, she turns four this week. So just like, I feel like we're in this like new phase of like getting to like really have these like, you know, moments where we're really talking and experiencing. And she's create. She has memories now that she talks about all the time. So um, it was great. Um, I had lunch with Ido, which I have to say is a silver lining for me. You know, COVID, my husband is, he always worked like, you know, nine to like six, seven in New York City. And we never got to do lunches unless I had like slept to him and it was like a special thing. So we've been able to have like breakfast, lunch and dinner together every day for a year now. And it's great. Like we love it. I actually like sitting down for me, like eating is such a social thing too. So we get to, you know, and we get to be alone too during the days because Dave's at daycare. So I think that's really nice for us. And, uh, yeah, I think FaceTiming my sister who's due almost soon and just talking to her and like, you know, knowing where she's coming from, like of this, like complete unknown, because this is her first. So like trying to prepare her without scare her, but also like be there for her and like try and just, I'm trying so hard to like, just be a part of the process as much as possible, even from here. So that was great. Okay. I, I totally feel you on the, the 
stage that you're in now because uh, my son is a few months away from being four, but it's a pretty incredible time when you're just like, he's my little friend now. Like the conversations are amazing and it's, it's so fun. It's super fun. Um, (laughs) Tell me a little bit about, I'm sure most people have heard of you, Eden, Eden Eats. And I know you have a new book out right now, Eating Out Loud. But tell me a little bit about your journey with eating and cooking and and where that really comes from and, and what has sort of gotten you to where you are today. As I said earlier, you know, in high school, I, I, I was a class clown, a bit of a troublemaker. And when it came time to apply for university, I was like, not just like not interested. You know, being in school was not my place. It was socially. Love my friends, love my teachers. But having to sit down and like learn and like focus was like so hard for me. Uh, And I actually fell in love with Food Network, interestingly enough, in grade 10. And that was kind of what inspired me to like buy cookbooks and start baking and start cooking. And uh, my dad was the one that actually pointed it out to me. He's like, you know, I can really tell that like you love baking. Like, why don't you like go to culinary school instead of like university? And I was like, what? Like, what? That's a thing. Like, I wasn't even thinking like this. And my dad totally like, you know, put the idea in my head. And luckily enough, one of my best friends got into London College of Fashion. And I was like, why don't I go to Le Cordon Bleu in London? So we moved to London together when I was 18. And I... How fun. Oh, the best. It was also like so dangerous because I was like legal king age there. And I was like, I'm in London. (laughs) it It was insane. Like it was pretty crazy. And, you know... Traveling throughout Europe on the weekends, like totally affordable and yes. accessible. Ryanair. Yeah. And it was amazing. Like I had the most incredible two years. I, I studied pastry and cuisine and I worked in kitchens while I studied and traveled. And I graduated with the grand diploma in pastry and cuisine. And after I graduated, I kind of was like more, I know this sounds crazy. Like I fell in love with food, but I was more interested in travel than I was in food at that time. But I do, I do think that like so much of my travel love and uh, my, my love of travel comes from exploring food all around the world. So I was like, I need to travel. And I ended up signing up for this uh, trip that took me to India for three months. And I like completely fell in love. I went not knowing anyone. There was I think like eight other people on the in the course. And it was a really great trip because they signed me up for things that I probably wouldn't have done on my own. Like a trek through the Himalayas. I did a Vipassana meditation retreat for eight days. They introduced me to this amazing orphanage that I got to volunteer at. I worked at Mother Teresa's hospice, like stayed with families in Dharamsala, like a Tibetan. I, I would... I lived with a family in like the Dalai Lama's temple and I would have like Tibetan butter tea with eight monks like every other day. And I'm like, where am I? It was amazing. It was amazing. Wow. Um, and I was, I think, 20. I was 20, maybe wow. one. And um, I just fell so deeply in love with it. I ended up moving to Israel after that trip, lived with my cousin. I worked in a kitchen and then, and I, and I lived there for a year and I saved up and I went back to India and I went back to the orphanage that I was volunteering at before and ended up actually, they had this cafe that was donated to them by a previous volunteer. 
And I was like, well, I just graduated culinary school. Why don't I reopen this for you and run it? Like I was 21. Okay. Wow. (laughs) And so I did just that. And actually my parents, uh, they're, they're very much in my story. You'll see. They suggested that I film the process. And I was like, well, I'm really busy. Like, guys, I'm like running a cafe in India. Like, can you please give me a second here? And I ended up doing what they told me to do. And eventually, after I finished backpacking, I stayed in India after that time for around seven months. Wow. And and like all like Kashmir, Kerala, Andaman Islands, Goa, Delhi, Hampi, Bodhgaya. Like, I just, I love, like, I am... All I want to do is take Ido to India. Like that's like my number one. You've been to more places in India than I have for sure. It's my, I love it. The food, the culture, the people, everything about it. Like I get, I get emotional thinking about it, but, and then Southeast Asia. And then eventually I moved to New York. And what happened was I got that video cut down into basically a sizzle. And I was working in New York and I was working at this bakery And, um, there was this like article in the times about this big agent. And again, my parents are like, you should take that video to this agent. I'm like, mom and dad, stop giving me all these amazing ideas. Cause I'm just, I have FOMO of like, yeah, it's a great idea. I'm going to do it. Like, I'm not going to like miss out on these like amazing ideas. And I did just that. And that agent called me back basically like two weeks after I dropped my video off at the front desk. (laughs) And, um, it's, since then, I, you know, I, it took a while to come up with a show concept, but I met my business partner. We created Eat and Eats, which is the first show I sold to the cooking channel. And together, uh, we partnered with a production company and sold it. And um, I've been in food television ever since. And now you are a judge on Canada's yeah. Top Chef. Host. Host. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Host. No, it's- That is like... You so you are like in the U.S. Top Chef. It's Padma, Padma, yeah, Lakshmi, and in Canada, it's you. <laughs> that is so cool. That's amazing. Yes, How so, fun! Oh, it's brilliant, like, and a lot of work. It's a yeah, but it's a dream job. Like I'm obsessed with Top Chef. I have been for years, and when Top Chef Canada reached out and told me they're like looking to, you know replace their host and they were interested in me. I was like, okay, like, sure, um, I'm coming in. And then I booked that. And it's like, I think it's my fifth season as the host of Top Chef Canada, which has been like the most amazing gig. I absolutely love it. So tell me a little bit about cooking, food, and mental health. Oh my God. I... 100% 100% connect food with your like physical and mental well-being. I cook Middle Eastern Mediterranean food, which just so happens to be very like veg forward, lots of like extra virgin olive oil and, you know, lean fish. And I, I, to be honest, I, there is a, there is a lot of meat consumption and I think meat is totally fine. But for me, it's very much about moderation. And I just find that I eat less meat based off this diet. And I just, you know, for me, like, especially someone who loves food and eats food and travels for food. When I'm at home, I usually tend to cook like the way I like to cook, which is Middle Eastern Mediterranean. And then when I leave the house, I don't really like think too much about anything and just enjoy and I'm in the moment. So I just feel, you know, because I cook that way, it gives me a lot of energy, which 
keeps me happy because there's always so many things I want to do. And I'm a pretty like energetic person, especially being a mother of a four-year-old, just like the amount of energy that goes into that, let alone also having like a full-time job. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, that's for me, there's, there's a lot that has to, there's a lot that connects that, you know, just veg forward, also really approachable, easy, nothing to like intimidating or, or overwhelming. So that like, when you're in the kitchen, it doesn't feel like it's too much and it's food that makes you feel good. And, and it's food that you can actually eat regularly versus like splurging dishes. What is your favorite meal to cook that helps boost your mood personally? Oh, good question. I'd probably say like, my fridge always has like an assortment of dips and spreads. Like tahini is basically like, I feel like I'm 90% tahini at this point. Um, <laughs> but um, I would say probably like a classic, like meze spread with like a shakshuka and some like fresh bread of some sort. I just love being able to like dip and schmear and have like a variety of different things that I can put on my plate. And also, I think it creates such like a, a really like a beautiful eating experience because it can really mm-hmm. like it, it makes it more social and more personal sharing, yeah. sharing everything with the people you're sitting with. So uh, definitely kind of like a spread like that, like hummus and tahini, pita, chopped salad, shakshuka, you know, all that fun stuff. Did you grow up eating Middle Eastern Mediterranean food? Yeah. So I'm half Israeli. I've gone to Israel every summer of my life and it was just, you know, the food that, you know, uh, my family always gravitated to and always ended up cooking at home. You know, my dad's famous for his tomato salad. We we love a fresh salad in this family. And uh, actually, after I went to culinary school and I lived in Israel, it was like being in the, the country almost for the first time because I, I I looked at things so differently and it wasn't just like, going and eating at your regular spots. It's like asking more questions, exploring more options. And uh, it's, you know, I married an Israeli man. So it's just part of like our lifestyle. It's just, it's second nature. Being in India for the time that you were, it sounds like it had a huge impact on you personally. How did it impact your cooking style? It actually did a lot. There's some Indian influence in my cookbook, Eating Out Loud. And I think what it really did was it solidified my love for spices and my use for spices and how to use spices. Because I really find that in Indian cuisine, like it's so, you know, nuanced and like to be able to develop those flavors without one spice overwhelming another, like it takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, also like learning how to really release the flavors as uh, like the best you can. Uh, so I do think that my time in India encouraged my love for spices and like my, my love for using them. Plus I do love like the medicinal properties behind them and, uh, learning a little bit about that. And I always feel like when I'm using turmeric and ginger and all these like really great ingredients in my cooking, it's like, it's a win-win. I feel great. Mm -hmm. I know it's good for me. Anti-inflammatory, like all these things just like add to the quality of your life. 
Absolutely. With eating out loud, where was the idea for this? And what is what is the idea behind the title of eating out loud? Is it maybe I'm 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 guessing, but partly with using spices, and it sounds like that's being more bold. And where did that idea for the title come from? And how does that work with the book? Well, the book. So I had a restaurant in New York City a couple of years back. Contemporary Middle Eastern food, fast casual. It was called Des. Super proud. Oh yeah. I partnered with Samantha Wasser. Unfortunately, it was short-lived. The restaurant industry, especially in New York, is insane with like rents being yes. like next level. Like, but it was such a good experience, and um, I I wouldn't change any of it for the world. I learned a lot, and um, that really you know solidified kind of the food I really wanted to put out into the world and and the food that represented me and like who, what, what I want to get across. And I'm very much inspired by the food scene in Israel and how it always evolves. And it's very veg forward, really, I wouldn't like just the flavor. It's like, you know, the food scene in Israel, it's just Tel Aviv in particular is I just find it's just like evolving so quickly. And I just loved it so much that every time I go, I'd come back and want to cook all these dishes and these flavors for my friends. So that's very much what inspires a lot of the food that I I cook now. And eating out loud was just like the evolution after Des. Like Des inspired this style. And then the book, which is very veg forward, uh, contemporary Middle Eastern cooking, approachable, accessible, you know, I am a very, I lo- I don't like when things are complicated. I don't like when I look at a book and I'm like, well, I can't, ma- I wish I could make this, but I need 20 ingredients I don't have on hand right. to make this. So like I was incredibly um, aware of, um, you know, actually using spices over and over again, if, if I asked you to go buy it, because I didn't want you to guys go buy a new spice and then never use it again and using techniques and things that, you know, they're, they, they repeat themselves. But for me, I find that that's actually been great because people now feel more confident to make even more of the recipes in the book. That kind of brings me to what, how can you, so I know cooking for you is, and I can see it, which is amazing and, and hear it. It's such a source of passion and joy for you. And it really lights you up. What about like, how can you help people like myself included, where especially over this last 13 months, cooking has been a real source of like a drag and monotony. And like, just if I'm asked one more time in my house, what's for dinner, I think I'm going to lose it. And after working full day and having, you know, no help and having to put food on the table three times a day, even though my husband is so helpful and, and oftentimes I think better at it, I feel like I'm really good at like this very sort of grandiose, like I find this recipe and I'm going to make this amazing dish. And I actually feel like I'm good at that. I can do it. But then I'm literally tired for like two days and I've created a mess in the kitchen and I'm never going to do it again. I don't know how to like cook the like, just whip something up and like the quick, easy meals that actually taste good. Cause I'm just like, frankly, so sick of eating like a piece of grilled chicken and like vegetables. I'm sorry. Well, I get it. And like, that's, I think a lot of people are suffering from like cooking fatigue. I know for a fact that I, I, I'm, I can't do another fucking dish. I'm done. No more for me. It's not even about the cooking. It's about the cleaning. I can't look at my dishwasher. I can't look, I can't, I'm cleaning everything by hand right now, actually, because I'm living through a renovation in my, uh, in my bathroom. It's like such a joke. 
But I would say, you know, and this is something that I really think is really great about the book. I don't use techniques that are too challenging or too difficult. For me, it's less about technique and it's more about pairing the right flavors and the right textures. So, you know, it's just about shopping for the right ingredients and having like, you know, the right pantry items on hand as well. For instance, like my husband and I have a chopped veg salad, like, which is super easy to whip up and also super easy to kind of like play with as well. If you want to switch it up, it doesn't need to be the same, you know, a classic chopped salad, like bell peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers, onion, really good extra virgin olive oil, fresh lemon juice and salt. So fresh. It could be the base of bowls. It could be a side to eggs. It could be a side to grilled fish, to steak. You can play up, you can add corn, you can add radishes, you can add parsley, you can add dill, you can add mint, you can add so many different ingredients to switch it up. But I do think it's about like kind of collecting like these handful of like just approachable versatile recipes that don't really require that much thought or technique. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also why I love like my condiment section. It's like, here is a chick that I make hummus out of uh, canned chickpeas because I'm not going to be soaking my chickpeas realistically. Like it just right. never happens. So right. it's about really finding shortcuts that are worth it and ways to also like elevate things that can be simple. Like it doesn't need to be too complex, but it can also feel special when it's easy. So like tahini, hummus, salad, a beautiful condiment can take something so simple to another level. Like, you know, a salsa verde, a chimichurri, you can grill anything on on the barbecue and then put like a condiment on top of it. And all of a sudden, it feels more elevated, but there's literally no technique into it. Just like watching you and hearing you speak actually makes me excited about cooking, which I haven't been for us. So I'm like, maybe there is something about that, like just leaving the cooking channel on or the food network on in the background. Sometimes that like really does inspire you and and and, and kind of looking at it in a different way. Yeah. Um, but I do think partly it is just like a matter of time and like how little time there is for so many of us that are cooking at home right now. But I also like really see such a, uh, oftentimes when I prescribe sort of like mindfulness activities to people, they, a lot of times they're eating exercises. And I see so much parallel between like cooking and mindfulness. And I've realized it's actually a really beautiful exercise with a toddler as well. Just being able to recognize like scent all the senses and and really like put yourself into something. And, and I think when you're cooking a lot of times, it almost forces you. I am like notorious for something I need to work on is, is you know, always working because I work for my phone. Um, it drives my husband crazy, but he's like, you don't work from a computer. So that means you're never off because your phone is always with you. It's like part of you. So I'm constantly like answering emails or working on my phone. And I find that I even will bring it, you know, to the kitchen when I'm trying to cook, but there's some point in the recipe that just stops you from doing that because either your hands are dirty, you've touched raw meat or chicken or fish, or you need both your hands. And it actually forces me to do one thing at that time, which to me is a mindful activity. And, um, you know, I actually really enjoy it. It's just a matter of, I think for me and maybe a lot of people, it's again, the decision fatigue on what to make that drives me absolutely bananas. Um, 
It's yeah. it's like unreal. And I'm not the easiest. My husband is sort of just like, I will eat the same thing or a version of it or even leftovers or like every Monday this. And like, I'm just like the annoying wild card that's just like, I have to be in the moment and like see how I'm feeling before. I'm just I, <laughs> my husband wanted to make a schedule of like what we eat. I'm like, you can't tell someone who, this is like my creative outlet. What, like every Monday I'm, I have to make this, like me even making something more than once is like a shock you know. Well, that is amazing. And that makes sense for you. I need to get on the schedule because I actually don't even have that creative outlet part within me. I just like, it would be so much easier. So I feel like I'm going to look through your book and make a schedule out of your book. Yes, girl. I think, listen, I can even like suggest like, you know, I have a chapter on eggs and it's like, for me, it's not like breakfast eggs. Like eggs can be enjoyed all day, every day. Um, and that's kind of standard too. Like um, when I'm in Israel, we eat omelets for dinner lots of the time. It's a really quick, easy protein, delicious, and a really great like thing to dress up and play around with. So like I have, you know, uh, do you like fish? I do. I do like fish and I'm newly um, liking more different types of fish. I, you know, it's it's partly also like I am going through a autoimmune thing right now and I'm like, I've tried everything and I'm finally at the point where I'm like, okay, maybe I'll try one of these like anti-inflammatory diets that I'm not so sure about yet because I've tried them before. But the problem is like, I may not get my source of joy from cooking per se, but I certainly get a lot of joy from eating and just being around like socially and just eating. I love to eat. And whenever I have to follow some sort of diet, it's like that joy very quickly diminishes. And it's like, I have to eat just to survive. And I'm like, there's so many things on my no list. And I'm just like, don't have the time or space to like be creative within it. And I'm just like, I'm lost with what to eat. And it makes eating not only not enjoyable for me, but then I'm like, ugh. Well, I'm not going to like be creative and think about what everybody else should eat in my house because selfishly, like I can't even eat it. I think I've like tried to go on like two in my life where I was, yeah, no bread. And like, I ate only yes. bread. All I did was yeah. eat bread. I ate bread for like a week. Yeah. I was like, no bread, Eden. And I was like, how do I eat more yes. bread? <laughs> well, that psychologically is what happens. It's like you want what you can't have, which is another reason which pulls me back to Emily Oster's book. I remember like when I was pregnant, all I wanted was deli meat yeah. because I knew I couldn't have it. A hundred percent. All I want is smoked turkey, which in real life, yeah. like I wanted like a Subway sandwich ew, like from ew. Subway. I, get, I feel you. I feel <laughs> all I want. Like, listen, I would smoke turkey. Like, yes, top my list. But recently I want a margarita and I also want a dirty vodka martini. And I also want an Aperol spritz. Like they're like just cocktails. I need yeah. them. Like, I can't wait to take them down the second. The, <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, once you deprive yourself of something, you basically like idolize it or something. You like totally obsess over it. And I think that's why well, our brains, our brains don't work in negatives. And so if you, if I asked someone to imagine eating an apple, you could do it. But if I asked you to imagine not eating an apple, the only way you could do it was imagine actually eating the apple and then not like, so our brain doesn't get that. So the whole culture on like, even in addiction, when it's like, don't smoke, don't drink, don't eat bread, don't eat sugar on, on diets, don't eat like your brain literally cannot 
not see that. And so I think that the better way, and I know this, and it's something I have to work on because it's literally the research I talk about, it's imagining eating something different. So instead of like not eating the bread, you have to kind of idolize or think about eating something different that you can. But I love bread more than Oprah loves bread, I think. So I am having a really tough time right now. I'm there with you. I don't know. For me, I like the way because I eat like and cook Middle Eastern Mediterranean food. I obviously I know a lot of people deal with like sensitivities and allergies and everything. And I do feel like food is connected to health as we talked about before. But like, for me, I just, I always have believed in moderation. Yeah. And like that has just kind of always been like my focus. I, I, I don't deprive myself of anything. And because of that, I don't feel like I'm not eating a whole pizza pie. I'm eating two right. pieces of pizza. And I'm calling because you know you can have it whenever it is that you want it, but it's obviously when you know you can't have it, all you want to do is take down the entire pie, yeah, because you're not supposed to, and you don't know when you're going to get it next. I know, so it makes sense. It's also why a lot of you know kids when they're not allowed to eat certain things and they go to their friends' houses. What do you think they're eating in the pantry? <laughs> okay, wrapping things up. I kind of want to ask you a little bit because in the beginning, you just so naturally were describing your relationship to optimism and sort of in relation to your husband's. And you're like, maybe it's just because of stuff I've gone through in my life. But um, what is the biggest struggle that you've ever been through and how have you worked your way through it or continue to work your way through it? Oh, that's really, you know, I think I I talked about this earlier. I had some pretty bad postpartum anxiety with my daughter, which threw me like, it shook me. You know, I, 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 I had always a kind of underlying anxiety throughout high school. And, and, and basically I've had underlying anxiety since like grade 10. And, but it was always manageable. I grew up dancing. And then in India, I fell in love with yoga. And I've always been like physically very active. Like that's just, you know, who I, who, who I am. And I think because of that, it was my outlet a lot of the time for the anxiety that like, I didn't realize I probably should have been chatting about and talking more about in my life. Uh, but it was fine. I managed it. And then, um, and basically I was able to create this like, you know, person who always, you know, if I, if I had to do something new, which I always had to do because that's just my career. I always had to put myself in uncomfortable new situations, which I'm thrilled that I did. Cause I felt like I really grew from all those situations. I always kind of knew deep down inside that I could like figure it out. And I did. And when I had AIDS, it was the first time in my life where I actually didn't think that what I was doing was right or that I could like figure it out. And it scared me like crazy because it was, it was just like an overwhelming, like very lonely, isolating experience. And uh, to top off like the fear and the unknown with like this overwhelming anxiety, which actually turned a little bit into OCD. It was just like, it was so much. Like I remember telling my husband, like I couldn't even put into words, like what I was experiencing. It was one of those things where like, you don't know what's happening when it's happening. And then like, you know, obviously a couple months down the road, maybe when you're like out of it a bit, you're like, holy moly, like that was exactly how I was feeling. This is what I was going through. And because there's just so much fear around it, 
you are alone and you don't really know where to go. How did you or how are you working through that? To be honest, when I stopped breastfeeding, a lot of things got better. So, you know, breastfeeding and hormones personally for me was something that really contributed to, I'm sure, just like this imbalance of like the cocktail of hormones that you get after you give birth, like they're different for everyone. And I have friend, I have a friend that's like, I was high as a kite for a year. I was untouchable. I was in heaven. And I'm like, I was in fear. I was scared. I was crying every second. Like, and you know, it was, it was, it was, there was so much like also the breastfeeding and the bloody nipples and the milk coming in and the healing and the labor and the actual pushing a baby out. And you're like, what did I go through? Like psychologically, like, you know, it's shocking that we all go through this yet. It, it's the biggest thing we all go through in our lives. It's like so huge. Like, like for me, I'm like, wow, that was the biggest thing I've ever gone through in my life. And we all go through it. We all have such different experiences and like... And it's so rarely actually spoken about in a real way. Yeah. I think. A hundred percent. You know? So I think that is really important. And every pregnancy is different too. So I know you're approaching your next one. And I think there's, you know, it's a tough experience all around. Obviously the most beautiful experience. Well, and I shouldn't say obvious. It's it's very, very personal and different for everyone. But I think that there's this, there's this pressure to kind of, we reach back into what I talk about a lot of toxic positivity to just be like grateful the whole time. And so we are kind of silenced when we experience anything other than gratitude or joy when having a child and the experience of it, because heaven forbid we say anything that, you know, is you know, looks like trauma or fear or anger or depression or anxiety because we should just be grateful that we have a child. And I think that we just have to start getting better at being all of the above. Like we can be thankful and joyful and think it's the most amazing thing, life altering event that happened, but also be shit scared. Oh, and we have to sort of normalize that, I think. A hundred percent. And for me, uh, you know, going through that and that's also like, I, I ended up going to CBT therapy, which I thought was brilliant. I personally have never been on medication. I hear it's very helpful for a lot of people. And I just thought before I do that, I'm going to go to CBT therapy and try it out. And that was actually incredibly helpful for me. So I did that. And I also think like, with time, a lot healed. Like I'm not dealing with the issues I was dealing with with Abe. Like I think it happened mostly the first year of her life. That was like very, like it was just overwhelming. And I do find that like the older she gets, the more confident I am and like understanding of my role and like our relationship, obviously she's not as fragile as she was. But now that I have another baby coming, you know, we've made a lot of changes in our life on purpose to kind of make sure that we're set up for a better situation. You know, I was in New York City without any family. And uh, Ido went back to work five days after I gave birth. So like, there was already that in itself. Like, I didn't have any help. I didn't have a nanny. I didn't have a nurse. It was me and Abe and Ido. And I didn't sleep for like six months because Abe was up every two hours breastfeed. Yeah, the sleep deprivation is real. No, sleep deprivation and hormones. Like I understand why it's like a form of torture. hundred percent. Like I always say to my mom, my parent friends, I'm like, hands down, the sleep is the hardest part for me. Like during this phase of, of, you know, being a parent, sleep is the hardest. So 
you know, we are currently in Toronto. My parents will be close by. We already have helps like, you know, that are, is going to be available to me. And Edo is working from home. So already there's like this amazing shift in like what, you know, my reality is. And also I know better now what I need. And so I think that that's going to be like a really big blessing. And also I know now, especially thank you, Crib Sheet, Emily, that like, maybe I don't need to slave for like a year of breastfeeding. Like if that isn't working, um, you know, you don't have to force it. The pressure I put on myself was insane. You know, yeah. like pump, like I, I remember I filmed a season of Top Chef Canada when it was six months and we were living in New York. I flew to Toronto with Ave and um, I slept in my parents' basement with her and she was at the crib at the end of the bed. So I was up every two hours and then I, they would pick me up at six in the morning and they would drop me off at 10 p.m. at night and I'd be pumping all day and I wasn't sleeping. So yeah. like, <laughs> I was like, I don't even know how I functioned. Yeah. It, it's pretty crazy. Thank you so much for being on Looking Up. It was so lovely to catch up with you. And I'm so excited to hear all about baby number two. Yeah. Um, the last thing that we do at uh, Looking Up is I get to pull a card for you from My Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards. Okay. And uh, it's sort of like your homework for the rest of the day. So this is the card that I picked for you. Just random right now while you were talking. Name just one thing that you are proud of yourself for. Anything that comes to mind. Even if it doesn't seem like it, you are accomplishing so much every single day and truly have so many things to choose from, but just pick one. I think that I'm I'm continuously pushing myself to do new things, even though there could be like fear or unknown associated with it. Because I think m the most growth you can have in your life is when you push yourself out of your comfort zone and try new things. And, um, and that's something that, you know, on some level I've always done subconsciously and um, I continue to keep doing it in my life. So I'm, I'm glad that I continue to do that, even though sometimes when you get older, you get less, you're, you become more fearful of doing new things. So I'm glad that I still hold on to that and I still want to do that. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Our theme music is Me and Shaw Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.